If I were to ask you what is the most significant day or what was the most significant day in your life, what would you say? Was it the day that you were born? Perhaps the day when you graduated from school? Uh, the day when you got married? Perhaps it was the day when um, something exciting happened in your, in your life? The birth of your first child? The birth of your tenth child? Um, <laughs> Perhaps it was something where it was a traumatic event in your life, very significant, the death of a loved one. Uh, I thought what we'd do tonight is we just go around the room and uh, let's share. Let's, uh, Jay, let's start with you. And uh, just, just kidding. Uh, if I were to ask you, however, what was the most significant day that impacted your life, what might you say? Well, you might say it was a day that happened before I was born, like when my ancestors came over to this fine country and I had the opportunity to be born here, unless, of course, you came over uh, and, and are here. Or maybe you would say it was a day when the iPod or the iPhone or the iPad was, uh, uh, was released or being released. But hopefully, you would say that a day that impacted your life the most was the day that you came to Jesus Christ and you fell at the foot of the cross and he came and became a part of your life. Uh, what was really important, the most significant day, I believe, in our lives was the day that Jesus of Nazareth died on the cross. And it was that day because everything changed. Everything changed. What was promised and predicted became reality. And the world has never been the same since. And that was good. What was a horrific event, the terrible trial and death of Jesus, became the most significant event for mankind. And if it's not your most significant event or day, then let me challenge you to reconsider that this evening. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. It's found on page 1343 of the Pew Bible, if you wish to follow along. And we're going to look at several verses here, but uh, as we get to it, the context is that the Apostle Paul is in a discourse concerning those who taught that salvation could be achieved by doing good works and following the law of Moses. But Paul wrote in Romans chapter 3, verse 28, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And so he's countering that argument. And in chapter 5, he begins showing us that the work of Jesus Christ on the cross provided the sacrifice for sins and completed the law so that faith could be understood as the only way to get to heaven. So I'm going to ask that you would read with me. And we're going to read together out loud Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 11. And hopefully it's on the screen so you can see it. Let's read together, shall we? But God demonstrates his own love for us. In that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received the reconciliation. And so we come to tonight 
as we're gathered here together to remember the significance of the forgiveness, the death of, our, of Jesus Christ upon a cruel cross. We call it a good Friday. Not because the murder that took place some 2,000 years ago was a good thing, but it was good for all mankind. As God placed upon his son the sins of the world and provided for all who believe the forgiveness of our sin and the promise of eternal life. It was good because it was pivotal in history and it proclaimed once and for all that God is sovereign in all things. And it was good because it became the connection that we can have to our Heavenly Father in a new relationship for the cross reconciled man to God. I've entitled the message this evening, The Significance of the Cross. And we're going to look at verse 8, and we'll see that the cross was where God's love was demonstrated, where our sinful condition was helpless, and Christ's sacrifice was sufficient. And when we finish, I trust that we'll respond with an attitude of gratitude as we remember that great event and we participate uh, around the table of our Lord. So let's be good, uh, begin by looking at uh, the significance of the cross was where God's love was demonstrated for us. And if you look with me at the very beginning of verse 8, it says, but God demonstrates his own love toward us. Now, words have meanings. And it's important that we understand exactly what the author has to say uh, and what he meant by the various words that he used. The word that's translated here, demonstrates, is a word that's used 16 times in the New Testament. It's translated into our English words of introduce, stand by, exhibit, to bring out, to approve, to commend, to consist, to hold together, and to demonstrate. Grammatically, it's in the present tense. It's still happening today. God continues to demonstrate his love towards us. He hasn't pulled the plug and said, enough already. Uh, he, has, he loves us, and we know, with an everlasting love. He loves us, in fact, sometimes more than we love ourselves. In fact, he loves us in spite of uh, who we are. And he wants to have a personal relationship with us. Uh, but we're the ones who often thwart his efforts to connect. So we spurned his loving appeal to get to know him. And we have intentionally turned against him. And we've done harmful things to him. All of us, like sheep, as we've heard, have gone astray. And each of us has turned to our own way. And it's only divine love that would want to have a relationship with people such as you and me. The anthem that's continuously peeled from the Bible is that God is love. And God so loved the world that he gave his only son, John 3.16. You know the verse very well. It tells us that God loved the world, that God gave his only son, that God gives those who believe on him the promise that they will not perish and that they will have eternal life. Now, that doesn't mean that God loves us because Christ died for us. Rather, Christ died for us because God loves us. Thus, God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. Because the forgiveness that comes from God is a demonstration of his own love. It must always be seen as a divine gift. It is never a result of human achievement. We can neither earn it nor do we deserve it. But we can accept it and we can be forgiven as a result of God's great love. 
And may that day be a, have a very significant place in your life. Many hymn writers have tried to capture uh, the significance of this divine love. And we're going to sing one of those songs a little bit later. But Isaac Watts, several centuries ago, wrote that famous hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, On Which the Prince of Glory Died, My Richest Gain I Count But Loss, And Pour Contempt on All My Pride. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, it demands my soul, my life, and my all. And may our gratitude for God's love demand our souls, our lives, and our all be given back to God. But not only is a demonstration of God's love a significance of the cross, but the cross showed us that our sinful condition was helpless. Our verse says, while we were yet sinners. Uh, were we not sinners at some point in time? Are we sinners now? To understand this, let's look carefully at what's being stated. The construction of this phrase, for those of you who are English or Greek scholars, is a genitive absolute. It's very rare. Now, the genesis of absolute in, uh, in Greek is a phrase usually consisting of a noun, in this case, we, and a participle, sinners or sinning, which is logically but not grammatically connected with the rest of the sentence. The participle sinners modifies the noun we. If you were in the deep south, uh, you might say we is sinners. Uh, that's a pretty good description, uh, description, I believe, of what we are. It's declaring our sinful condition. And it's probably best to understand this as while we were being sinners. Remember that time? God and Christ, which are the whole points of the verse, did something for us, which we could not do for us, ourselves, because of our sinful condition, which was helpless. Now, the importance of this phrase cannot be overlooked, for we should note that it's not because we were Jews or Greeks. It's not because we're rich or poor. It's not because we're righteous or good, but it's because we're just plain old sinners. God demonstrated his love for us, and Christ died for us. If I were to ask you what is sin, we would learn that sin is any lack of conformity to the will of God or any transgression of the law of God. You may say, well, what does sin do? Well, sin separates man from God, and it is manifest in the selfishness, rebellion, and total depravity of man's conduct and behavior before God and man. Now, life in our world is not even the way it was several years ago. In fact, today there's not even an agreement over whether sin exists or what it might be. In a Wall Street, article, uh, Wall Street Journal article entitled To Hell with Sin, the author wrote about a mainline church in Minneapolis that no longer recognizes sin. It's, instead, it focuses on healing, affirming, and consoling, on accepting others for exactly who they are. Largely drained of doctrine, this church strikes the observer as little more than a club for good works, a kind of red cross with a steeple on top. Uh, what fills the hole at the center where Christian moral code used to be? It's an ethic of conspicuous compassion where being a nice person excuses everything. Well, the author goes on to say that a person is not a sinner in need of forgiveness and atonement, but a person in need of non-judgmental care. Well, if that's what you think this evening, I'm sorry. That I have to be the bearer of bad news. But sin does exist. 
And sin is prevalent in our society today, just as it is every other place where humans exist on the earth. The Bible teaches us that God, by a special instantaneous act, created man in his image. Man was holy. He was righteous. He was possessing true knowledge. And our first parents did not, however, remain in the glorious and happy state of their original creation. But through the subtlety and deception of the devil, they disobeyed and transgressed the command of God, the creator, incurring on themselves and their posterity the the sentence of spiritual and physical death. The guilt and consequences of Adam's sin have thus been imputed to the entire human race so that all men are guilty inherently corrupt, totally depraved, and subjects of the wrath of God. Now, how do you feel? Well, in other words, when Adam sinned, we sinned. It's what makes us sinners. And the nature that we were born with is a sinful nature. No one had to teach you how to be bad, disobedient, self-centered, egotistical, arrogant, obnoxious, and malicious. You were born that way. But that sinful nature so directs our thinking and our actions that we freely commit acts of sin. We are sinners because of original sin. And we're sinners because of the sins that we commit. There are specific acts that we do, which are in direct violation of what we know is right. We do wrongful acts that we know are wrong, and we don't do rightful acts that we know we should have done, but we didn't do them. We call these acts of commission and acts of omission. Now, if I were to ask you, have you ever committed a sin? Could you think of one time in your life, just one, where this were the case? Now, I know most of you are wonderful people. You would never intentionally do anything wrong. But somewhere, sometime, you must have missed the mark. Can you think of such a time? Don't have to think so long. I thought so. I think we're all agreed. We've committed personal sins. All of us have sinned. Believers and non-believers alike, we're sinners. And since we messed up, since we missed the mark, we either need to pay for our sins to make atonement or we need forgiveness. And forgiveness is granted when love is extended. But we can't do that for ourselves because we're the ones that messed up. We know that we've sinned. We have ruined the relationship that we could have had with God had we not sinned. But we have. And unless something changes, we remain in an unforgiven state. Now, I'm afraid in our society today that we've lost the, con- the conscious realization of how terrible our sin really is. In the Old Testament times, a family would have to go to its flock of sheep. They would have to select the best lamb, their pride and joy, the one they named, the one they loved. Take it to an altar. And then stand by and watch as a priest would kill it before their very eyes and then burn it up so there was nothing left. They would visually see that sin cost them something that was dear to them. That sin was exceedingly sinful and that the consequences of sin is death. And although we've lost that visual reminder, the word of God does tell us that the wages of sin is death. And it also tells us that all have sinned. And come short of the glory of God. So there's no exception. Sin brings death. And those who live in sin will die. And since we all sinned, we all deserve death. But that's not what God wants for us. For he loves us. He demonstrates his love for us. And since we couldn't change our condition, God did. 
Martin Martin Luther wrote, Take this to heart and doubt not that you were the one who killed Christ. Your sin certainly did. And when you see the nails driven through his hands, be sure that you are pounding. And when the thorns pierce his brow, know that they are your evil thoughts. Consider that if one thorn pierced Christ, you deserve a hundred thousand. Our sinful condition left us helpless and hopeless. But God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Why did this happen? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us, and he was a person whose life was changed around by the love of God. He wrote, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. And being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus came to earth in order to provide himself as a sacrifice for our sins. And we heard about this being promised as Pastor Schlonecker read to us Isaiah 53 written some 750 years before the cross. The cross is significant because it's always been a part of God's love that he demonstrated towards us. It was on that cross that Christ's sacrifice was sufficient. The relation of the cross to God's love and to the forgiveness of sins can be seen in the earliest Christian writings and preaching. The apostle Paul proclaimed that Christ died for our sins. That Christ was a sacrifice of atonement. That he became a curse for us. That those who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And in Hebrews, the writer says that he's the one who bore our sins in his body on the cross. Hebrews 10 verses 12 and following, the writer tells us that Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sin for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. The forgiveness of our sins comes from the cross. And so we come tonight to look at the cross. I want to share with you seven things uh, about the significance of the cross. We'll do this very quickly. First of all, I want us to note that the mind of God planned the cross. The death of Jesus was not an afterthought or an accident. No angel rushed to the throne of God and said, Lord, the enemy has broken through the center of our lines. It's time for you to do something. No, God planned it right from the start. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18, Peter writes, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. The mind of God planned the cross from eternity past. But the law of God demanded the cross. After man sinned, God sent Moses and through him, 
he gave us the law. And Moses put up signposts that would tell us how to live. Thou shalt not. And since God knew that men would break his law, he decreed that there must be payment for guilt. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22 says, And according to the law, one may almost say, All things are cleansed by blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. The sacrificial system was to impress upon the people the thought that sin means death. My sin, your sin, must be punished by death forever. Now, death means separation. And when the body dies, it's a separation of the soul and the spirit from the body. And that's physical death. But the second death is the separation of the soul and spirit from God in hell. And only a sacrifice of a life could pay the penalty of our sin. And Jesus paid on the cross for those who believe. And so the law of God demanded the cross. But thirdly, I want you to see that the word of God promised the cross. In Genesis chapter 22, there's an incident of the offering of Isaac. And I'm sure you remember this uh, by his father, Abraham. You remember that Abraham was at the ripe young age of 100. And God said to him, he said, Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. And he's going to have, you're going to have children. In fact, you're going to have grandchildren, as many as the sands of the sea, the stars of the sky. And Abraham said, thank you, God. At age 100. And he said, God said, do you believe? And Abraham said, I believe. And God said, good. Take Isaac, your only son that you have, and go up to a mountain, tie him to an altar, and kill him. I want you to offer Isaac uh, to me as a burnt sacrifice. And so Abraham said, well, uh, God, uh, Isaac is a little young to be a father, and you said that I'm going to have grandchildren. But now you're going to tell me to go and kill him. Well, Lord, I think you've worked your way into a corner. Um, You're going to have to perform a miracle in order to keep from being a liar. So, Isaac, let's go watch God perform a miracle. And off they went to Mount Moriah. And arriving at the mountain, they left the rest at the bottom. And very interesting in Genesis 22, verse 5, he says... He leaves the guys at the bottom and he says, we will worship and return. The we was just Abraham and Isaac. And so on the way up, Isaac asks, he says, Father, where is the lamb? And Abraham replied, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so the two of them walked up the mount together. You see the picture? Can you see how this worked out in the life of Christ? Here is God the Father and the Son going up to Calvary together. No wonder Christ had the strength to climb that mountain. And the Apostle Paul tells us that at Calvary, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. No doubt Abraham explained to Isaac, he said, God's told me to do this. And no doubt Isaac said to Abraham, he said, it's all right, Father. I love you, and I trust you. If God has told you to put me to death, he knows what he is doing. Again, do you see the picture? Jesus said, no man takes my life from me. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it up again. John 10, verse 18. 
And so we know that Abraham tied his son to the altar. And I don't care how old or young Isaac was. If I was the son, I doubt that would have happened. But Isaac was willing to be tied to the altar and there he lay. And it was that time. As Abraham lifted up the knife to kill his own son, God Almighty caught his arm and showed him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham offered that ram as a sacrifice for Isaac. Again, I think God was portraying the gift of the father by his, of his only son. For when Abraham cut the cords and, and he let Isaac get off the altar, you can almost see a picture of the Lord rising from the dead. And as they went down the hill together, can you imagine the joy that Abraham had as he was walking with his son? Jesus later said in John 8, verse 56, Abraham saw my day and he was glad. He was glad. The word of God promised a cross. And we could look at many passages throughout the Old Testament that depicted the cross. But fourthly, I want you to note that the holiness of God demanded the cross. In Mark 15, verse 34, Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did God the Father forsake the Son? It was so he wouldn't have to forsake you and he wouldn't have to forsake me. God in his holiness was showing us that our sin and my sin must be crushed. Either in ourselves we're put on Jesus Christ and crushed in him. If it's in ourselves, we carry it to hell. If we take him as our substitute, our sacrifice for our sin, we go to heaven. And the holiness of God demanded that Jesus Christ die on the cross because sin must be crushed and sin must be punished. And God's holiness demanded it. And fifthly, the Son of God accomplished the cross. Jesus, in John chapter 10, said, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. Jesus did not get trapped into the cross. Jesus wasn't framed, as a recent TV show tried to suggest. In fact, John 18, verse 4 tells us that when the soldiers surrounded Jesus in the garden, he faced them and said, Whom are you looking for? And they replied, Jesus of Nazareth. And when he said, I am he, it was the soldiers who fell back onto the ground. And it was Jesus who had to pick them up. Jesus didn't die as a normal man. Jesus said, I am the life. You can't put the life to death. The cause of his death was not a loss of blood or asphyxiation. The Bible tells us Jesus gave up his spirit. John 19.30. And during those hours of the cross, he offered one sacrifice for sin forever. For Jesus accomplished the cross. Number six, the justice of God accepted the cross. God, uh, the judge, is in heaven. And you can picture this, and Jesus has died. Is God satisfied with the death of Christ on the cross? Well, one day goes by, and then two. And on the third day, Jesus is raised from the dead. The justice of God says, paid in full. It's done. It's accomplished. You and I have a receipt as a result of this, which guarantees that we will find nobody guarding the door of heaven and keeping us out. The door is open. 
And if you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are welcome. And if some angel would come up to you and say, but aren't you one who was a sinner? You would answer, yes. But look at the receipt that I have. It says the blood of Jesus Christ paid this in full. Isaiah 53, 11, we heard already. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. For by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. So the justice of God was satisfied with the cross. And finally, the grace of God gives us the cross. It makes it personal for us. And its benefits are for us today. Romans 3, 24 says, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ. The King James translated it being freely justified. And the Greek word that's used there as a gift or as freely is a word that is best translated in the New Testament as without a cause. Without a cause. And so we are justified without a cause in ourselves. It is all the grace of God poured out upon us because Christ died for us. Why did the people hate Jesus without a cause? There was no cause in him. Pilate found nothing wrong with him. Herod found nothing wrong with him. The cause was in themselves. They wanted to run their own lives just as you and I want to do. They said, don't tell us what to do. Don't put up those signs telling us how to live. When Jesus said, this is what God wants, men hated him. And they said, we'll not have this man reign over us, get out of our way. And they nailed him to a cross. Today, nothing has changed. Same attitude still prevails. Although the unbeliever is indifferent to the sacrifice of Christ, we who are believers say, God, my sin was so terrible that Jesus had to die for me. And so we repeat what this hymn writer wrote, love, so amazing, so divine demands my soul, my life, and my all. God says justification can be yours without a cause. It's free. Jesus loved you and me without a cause in any of us. Was there anything or is there anything in you that would cause God to say, I love you? Not a thing. Then why do you love me, God? And God replies, don't look within yourself to find a reason. Because you can look from one end of your life to the other end of your life and you will not find the reason that God loves you. But you can accept this wonderful and unexplainable fact that God loves you because God is love. Well, in the cross, Christ's sacrifice was sufficient. The mind of God planned it. The law of God demanded it. The word of God promised it. The holiness of God required it. The love of God provided it. The son of God accomplished it. The justice of God accepted it. And the grace of God gave it to you and to me without a cause, freely and once for all. So how do we respond because this is a good Friday? Well, in the last verse that we read earlier in Romans chapter 5, verse 11, we read, and not only this, but we also exalt in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. See where Paul said, now we exalt in God. The Greek word for exalt is it also translated as glory. We glory in God. We rejoice in God. We, we joy. We boast in God. 
And our English definition of the word is also to show or feel a lively or a triumphant joy. Uh, It's to rejoice exceedingly, to be highly elated, to be jubilant. Get the picture? Don't worry. Be happy. In fact, born-again Christians should be the happiest people on the planet tonight because it's a good Friday. John Piper, in his book called Desiring God, uses the premise that the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. It's not and enjoy him forever, as if bringing glory to God were a chore. But it is by enjoying him forever. When we began to contemplate all that God has done for us, when we recognize the significance of the cross as a significant day in our lives, as we see what God is doing to us and what God is doing for us, we ought to be overflowing with joy and happiness, and our worship towards him ought to reflect this outrageous joy of our souls. This today is better than Christmas. This is more significant than Christmas because this is the day that the Lord has made. It should be the most significant day for us to remember. So let us be glad and rejoice in it. But God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Is there an amen somewhere? Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for the fact that you gave us your son who gave himself to shed his own blood on the cross so that we might have eternal life. We love you, Father, the great love we almost don't understand, but we thank you for it. May our lives respond by giving you everything as a sacrifice of living for who you are and for what you've done because we love you in Jesus' name.